the Siege of New Hampshire series by McRowland. Book Two, Siege Fall. Chapter 12, Continued. Landers let everyone contemplate the gravity of their collective no vote for what seemed like a long time. Most people had their heads down, deep in thought, or prayer. Now that we have all made that decision... And I must say that I think it's a mistake, interrupted Candace. Maybe, maybe not, resumed Landers. But the people have spoken. With this decision made, we must address a related item of business. The neediest among us, as you well know by now, the shelter ran out of fuel a few days ago. We placed all the people into homes of kind-hearted residents who had spare rooms, and we do thank you all for your generosity. But we still have a problem, said Wilder. Since the shelter closed, there have been more families who have since run out of fuel and can't stay in their homes any longer. Some have run out of both food and fuel, but there's no shelter to take them in. Martin raised his hand. Landers nodded to him. Uh, along those lines, yesterday a family from Manchester arrived. They didn't plan to stay in Cheshire, but ran out of gas here. I had them at my house last night because they had nowhere else to go, but I really can't keep them. My house is already full, and what food we have is already stretched thin. Others in the crowd nodded. A few vocalized that they, too, had become recipients of refugees or the wandering poor. So, uh, what do we do with them? Martin sat down. No one seemed to have an answer. Lance broke the long silence by clearing his throat. Yes, Lance, said Landers. Well, when I was a boy, my grandfather used to threaten me by saying if I didn't behave, he'd take me to the farm. Never made any sense to me as a kid because we were already on a farm. His grandfather used to threaten him with the same phrase. But back in my grandpa's day, the town actually had a poor farm. That's where people were sent who were broke or went homeless or had to work off some community service or such. <gasps> work farms? Candace sounded outraged. That's just cruel. This isn't the Middle Ages. These poor people have done nothing wrong. They should not be punished like bad children, simply because times are hard. It's kicking people while they're down. Where's the humanity in that? Times were hard in my grandpa's day, too, countered Lance. Not like it was all roses and clover back then. People hit tough patches. But there weren't a bunch of governmental teats to suck on. Yeah, oh, uh, sorry, ladies. I, I, I didn't mean, uh, uh, what, what I did mean was, go on, Lance. Uh, yes, well, I meant that they didn't have all of them federal safety net programs back then. Town Farm was a way to give people work to cover their keep. Most people, my grandpa said, only worked on the farm for a little while. Most of them would work hard and earn a bit more until they were back on their feet. So, I guess I'm wondering, since we don't have any federal aid or anything now, if there was a way to have a town farm again, give all these people a place to be and something productive to do. Lance sat down. Heads leaned together. The buzz of many soft conversations filled the room. The selectmen were conferring amongst each other, too. That's an interesting idea, Lance, said Landers at last. But we have nowhere we could set up such a farm especially now that the power's out and no fuel and all. We've got room, an old man raised his hand. Got our old big house. 
Kids never move back like we thought. Uh, could double up families in our four bedrooms. Yeah, old farmhouse. Every room's got a fireplace. Uh, had a little barn set up with simple bunk beds for a family reunion a couple of years ago. Bunks are still there. People could at least have somewhere dry and, well, sort of warm. That's awful generous, Don, but uh, you'd have to feed them, too. Well, we've got a fair amount stored away. Uh, the missus and I, uh, we don't eat all that much at our age, and I'm confident the Lord will provide more when that runs out. But a fair day's work should earn folks a bed and a hot meal. Work doing what? asked Wilder. Mr. and Mrs. Webster consulted privately for a moment. "'Well, sir, we, we have the wood my grandson cut down for next year's firewood. "'It's just down trees at this point. "'Don't look like he's going to be coming to finish cutting it up. "'They could cut and split and stack.' "'And there's the hay,' added Mrs. Webster. "'The Scott brothers come and bale hay off our back fields. "'It's still all stacked up way out there by the trees. "'Hauling all that into the barn by hand would be a ton of work without a tractor.' "'Yeah, we'll think of something else, too,' added Mr. Webster. Yeah, "'Having six kids taught us to think about chores.' <laughs> the Websters smiled at each other. "'Um,' said a man in brown flannel, with his hand raised. Landers pointed his gavel at him. He stood up hesitantly. "'I don't know if this helps or not, but my brother-in-law works, uh, or used to work, at a dairy farm up in Canterbury.' He was telling me how his boss had been really upset lately because he doesn't have enough hay laid up to feed all his cows for the whole winter. His usual truckloads of Canadian hay didn't come. Probably never will. He's all worked up that he's going to have to slaughter some of his herd to fit his existing hay supply. The guy loves his cows like pets, you see. Oh, he has names for them all. So uh, what are you saying? asked Landers. Uh, well, sir... Uh, what if we offered to take some of his cows, just for the winter, maybe, uh, on the Webster's farm? Give people something to do, provide some milk? Flannel man sat down, looking like he regretted having spoken up. Milk cows? Martin's mind took the ball and ran with it. Margaret was looking for more protein sources. It wouldn't be enough for the whole town, or at least those who remained, but it would be something. If the town really was on its own, it would need as much food production as possible. Simply eating out what everyone had in their pantries was a dead-end strategy, yeah, literally. He knew Margaret was dead set against cows, but thought her childhood skills might be a bargaining chip for securing some renewable food for his household of seven. Margaret would understand, he hoped. They had the others to think of. Cows would be wonderful. Oh, now I don't want to be a wet blanket, started Don Webster. But our farm wasn't set up for cattle. Most we had was a few horses uh, years ago uh, and a couple of pigs. There hasn't been a dairy farm in Cheshire since the Colliffs closed up their operation years ago, said Wilder. Martin's spirits fell for a moment. Then he recognized that these were not deal-breaking problems. They were technicalities. What did it matter if the Webster's farm wasn't set up for cows? Maybe it could be. What did it matter that the Colliffs stopped running a dairy farm? They, or someone else, could start. That's right, 
said Red Colliff. We sold off all our bulk tank and milking equipment years ago. We're too old to run a dairy farm anymore. So what, Martin thought. Margaret talked about her childhood of milking by hand, cream separators and such. A farm didn't absolutely need modern equipment. The old ways would be more work, but they had more people with nothing else to do. Did you get rid of everything? Martin asked. Huh? Yeah, well, uh, me, let me see, mused Red. Yeah, not the little junky stuff. Nobody wanted that anyhow. Only the big equipment's got value. That went out to a guy by Peterborough, I think. So what is the junky stuff? Ah, uh, you know, cans, buckets. The stanchions were too old for anyone to want. Did you have a hand-crank cream separator? Martin was fishing, but he had an idea. Oh, sakes, yes, chuckled Mrs. Colliffe. I was going to make some planters out of those. Okay, so what about this? Martin addressed the selectman. What if we offer to take some of this Canterbury guy's cows for a while so he doesn't have to kill them and revive the Colliffe's dairy farm as a second town farm? They're just up the road from the Webster's who had the hay. They would be producing food that people could buy or trade for or something. Those are details to be sorted out. But still, it would be a renewable resource that we don't have now. You just said we're on our own now. I appreciate your thinking, Simmons, said Landers. But there's all kinds of problems with that idea. Martin took that as a challenge. More technicalities, I suppose. He crossed his arms. Oh, yeah? Like what? Ah, uh, well, um, for one, nobody knows how to milk cows by hand anymore. My wife, Margaret, she can teach other people, too. Martin cringed inside. He was volunteering Margaret without asking her. He knew how she felt about cows. Still, she'd understand. Man, what are you going to do with the milk afterward, said Red. You have to chill it. It's late October. Chilling shouldn't be a problem. Besides, if everyone is all that hungry, how long would the milk be sitting around anyway? It won't be properly pasteurized, said Candace. Do you realize the health risk that raw milk poses? This is a fool's errand, if you ask me. You can't risk the health of these people on untreated products. Starvation sounds pretty risky, too. Martin was certain he wasn't making a friend in Candace. She was glaring at him with a look that only Peter earned, though thus far. No one needs to face starvation, said Candace, if we all just reconsider that silly vote and cooperate with the legally appointed authorities, there would be food enough for everyone. Candace lobbied the crowd. That's all we want, right? Meals on our tables, right? Well, they'll bring them to us. We don't have to scrimp or go hungry or get sick from unprocessed milk. Candace was working up a good pulpit-pounding cadence. We don't have to be hungry. Our children don't have to cry. We can be safe and fed if only we comply with the law. I say we vote again and vote yes this time. Who's with me? The silence was awkward for everyone. Candace's raised arms slowly sagged like a melting snowman. We're not revisiting the vote, Candace, said Landers. The item on the floor right now is whether we should offer to take that man's cows. 
I still say you need some electricity, said Red. Some of that old hand equipment would help, but it still takes power. Nick stood up eagerly. Well, that's easy. Martin here just built a machine that makes gas from wood scraps. He was running his generator just this morning. It was pretty cool. You could have power. Martin pulled Nick back to his seat. Geez, Nick, Martin whispered. I didn't want that to be all public. What if somebody wants to come and steal it or something? Oh, wow. Nick looked horrified. Uh, I didn't think of that. Well, sorry, man. I just thought it would help. Uh, I, I didn't mean to make trouble. Martin sat back in a funk. Doubled-up watches would be tough with who he had to work with. What defensive value would a Susan and Judy team be? Margaret and Dustin would be okay. And he certainly wasn't going to double with Trish. He frowned on the lack of good options. Either way, how on earth are you going to get them all the way from Canterbury? added Wilder. Nobody in town's got a cattle truck. Horse trailers, said Martin, still wearing his frown. I've seen a lot of them in town. A horse weighs half of what a cow does, said a man in the back. Horse trailers aren't built for that kind of load. I've seen two horse trailers. Two horses then weigh about as much as one cow, right? So put one cow in a two-horse trailer, two cows in a four-horse trailer. I've got a four-horse gooseneck and a Sierra 3500, but I kind of ran it to near empty fetching my wife's horses last week, said a man in blue. Martin recognized him as Tyler from the funeral. I've got a four-horser, but my truck's out of action. Tie rods, said another man. Trailer needs a big ball hitch, set real low. My Laramie could pull that, but it's near empty too. Couldn't get any diesel once the power went out. It occurred to Martin that he was no longer running the furnace in his house, but burning wood alone. He still had a half a tank of fuel oil, and that was an under-assigned asset. Okay, how about this? Martin stood up. I'm willing to supply the fuel to make it happen. Yeah, what do you mean? Heating fuel is diesel fuel, right? I know, I know, road taxes. Never mind. It'll run a truck. That's all that matters right now. If we're going to try to make it through the winter, on our own... We need new food sources. These milk cows could be just that. So, I'm willing to invest 50 gallons of my own home heating oil to power these two guys' diesel trucks up to Canterbury and back. Martin's investment challenge set the room to buzzing. Martin tried to pick out some of the conversations, but it was mostly a crashing chaos of voices. From what little he could hear, the tone seemed positive, so he stood his ground, arms folded. Two more people volunteered their horse trailers, a two- and a three-bay unit. Their trucks were regular gasoline, but a few people stepped up to invest a few gallons each. Let's not get the cot before the horse, said Landers. This guy hasn't said yes to any of this yet. Walter, do you think you could raise somebody up that way to go ask him? Chief, could he use your radio gear? Yeah, oh, good. Walter and Chief Berg hurried out to the little dispatch room downstairs. In the meantime, there followed a convoluted discussion among various investors for the return on their investment. For his contribution, Martin was entitled to one-sixteenth of whatever the cows produced. They had trucks and trailers to haul six cows. Martin recalled Margaret's childhood stories. She told once of getting eight gallons over three milkings a day. 
Martin scaled that back to an amount for winter and less than optimal feed to figure that a cow might produce four gallons of milk a day, 24 gallons. One-sixteenth of that would be a gallon and a half. For seven people, that wasn't huge, but it was something, and hopefully steady. More discussion churned over just how much fixing up the Colla farm would need to be ready to house cows again. Landers waved to Martin to come and join him at the selectman's table. Simmons, this here is Mr. Ingalls. He's from the governor's office. Apparently, the governor has called for a joint meeting of the state senate and house, or at least as many of them as can make it, for tomorrow. Governor Vincent sent several staff to tour communities and report back today, said Ingalls. The governor has some big decisions coming up and wants to get a feel for how the people are holding up during this crisis. I have also been instructed to invite a few people who I think the governor will want to speak to directly. Given your town's vote just now, I've asked Mr. Landers to attend. Based on the discussions after that, I think the governor may want to speak directly with you, too. Really? Martin had no idea what the governor would want with him. Well, sure, I guess, but why would— He said yes, shouted Walter. He and Chief Berg came into the room all smiles. We got a hold of the cow guy. It took a couple of links, but he carries an FRS. He was tickled pink. I couldn't tell him how many we could take. He's standing by to find out and when we could come. Landers looked at Ingalls. So the governor wants to talk tomorrow, you say? Ingalls nodded. Well then, Simmons, it looks like we have a trip to Concord tomorrow. Tell him tomorrow, Walter and that we can handle six. The informational meeting had broken up without official adjournment, although no one seemed to notice. They began setting up their tables and boxes. There were many items on the tables, though transactions seemed less brisk. The man in blue, with the Sierra, approached Martin. Hey there. Just wanted to say thanks again for the few words that you said up at the cemetery. Yeah said his brother. It probably would have made our father madder than hornets to have God talk said over him, but too bad for him. It made Mom happy. Uh, no problem, said Martin. Glad I could help. So, a question for you, Tyler began. I hear tell you've made a wood cooker thing that you're running your gas generator on it. Martin sighed. It's true. He made a mental note to kick Nick in the shins at the earliest opportunity. So uh, how does that work? Tyler said. Oh, it's kind of complicated, but basically it cooks wood chunks so that they release gas like natural gas. Gasoline engines can burn that gas, so that's what we did. We made a little gasifier to run our little generator. Neat, Tyler said. I was wondering if you thought you could make a bigger one that could run my truck. Martin puzzled for a moment. The principles would be the same. Things would have to be scaled up, and there could be some complications with increased sizes. Oh, I suppose so. He didn't want to say no outright, nor appear too enthusiastic. Cool, cool, said Tyler. Well, we can talk about it later. We live in that old greenhouse on the highway, just over the hill from you. Charles and I are trying to barter some alcohol for some bread. Uh, catch you later. The two brothers walked off, engaged in a lively discussion. Martin found Landers and traded a jar of jam for one of his cans of beans. No one else showed much interest in jam. 
Jerry was there with more goat's milk, but doing less trading. Fewer people had cash. Their barter goods didn't interest him. Martin glanced around the hall. There were some deals being negotiated, but not as eagerly as the week before. He had been trying to conserve his supply of cash at home, but hearing what the man in the yellow hat had said made him wonder. If people just decided they didn't want paper dollars, they'd have no value. Susan had been talking about the symbolic nature of fiat currencies. People use them primarily because they trust the next person will take them in trade. Money had been part of the collective cultural thinking since biblical times. It was too much part of how people mentally organized their universe to not have some form. He would have to ask Susan about that. After just negotiating a deal to bring some cows to Cheshire, Martin was feeling pretty good. It seemed like there was practically no problem that couldn't be solved if people just got their minds over old ways of thinking. He noticed a woman in the corner, still trying to sell her metal knickknacks. She looked more worried than before. Martin felt bad for her. She was trying to sell useless decorations to people who were trying to scrape up enough food to eat. In normal times, people with disposable income probably did buy her tchotchkes. The woman was obviously stuck in her old ways of thinking. He wondered if she truly realized that times were no longer normal. Whatever people might put value in, ammo, silver, firewood, he couldn't see them trading any of those for her little craft baubles. Nick was still talking to the man in the yellow hat, so Martin figured that he would let the woman know why no one was buying her cute metal items. She didn't seem to understand the new utilitarian economy. Hi. Martin felt awkward starting up conversations cold. The woman looked up. Oh, hi. Her face brightened to a broad smile. In better times, she was probably attractive, in a down-to-earth sort of way. Slightly sunken cheeks and tired eyes hinted that the past two weeks without power had been hard on her. If you see something you like, she said, just let me know. I'm willing to haggle. The handwritten calligraphy prices on the frilly cards spoke of unrealistic expectations. Twenty dollars for a mama bear and cubs made out of copper sheet, embossed from behind to suggest fur. Fifty dollars for an old-fashioned farm windmill made out of galvanized sheet and some heavy wire. The least expensive item she had on display was a turkey made out of a funnel with wire feet. It was cleverly made, using some sort of triangular punch to raise little open wedges in the funnel that suggested feathers. Clever or not, it wasn't worth five dollars to anyone now. Martin sighed. Yeah, who would want any of this junk? They're out looking for food. Martin had a hard time imagining that metal knickknacks were all the woman had at home to trade. Other people were bringing in extra blankets, hand tools, kids' winter boots, anything to trade for a pumpkin or a few apples. Household items were at least something useful that someone might use during the coming winter. Tchotchkes? Martin thought the poor woman needed to be clued in. Surely she had some excess tangible goods that would be more valuable to people. Even cardboard would have some value for starting fireplace fires. Everyone should have cardboard at home. Uh, these are nice enough. No, thanks. I made them myself. I'm a metal artist, you see. She smiled nervously. Oh, great, he thought. Now I'm going to insult her artistness. I uh, didn't see too many people checking out your uh, art today. No. 
Her face fell back into its prior worried look. Well, you know, these are kind of hard times for people. Martin was trying to pick his words carefully. I know, I know, she sounded exasperated, but I really need to make some money. She wrung her hands together, which caught Martin's eye. Glancing at her hands revealed that the zipper on her sweater had crept down, revealing abundant cleavage. Martin looked up, startled at the sight. The woman noticed his glance and quickly zipped up her sweater to the neck. They both blushed. Martin was about to try and explain and apologize, but Nick hurried up beside him, gushing with excitement. Martin, 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 Nick said. Martin put down the funnel turkey, delighted at the handy exit to an embarrassing situation. What's the rush? Get a good deal on something? Uh, actually, trading has been kind of tough. I had no idea prices would be so high. I spent nearly all the cash I had on this deer meat. I didn't bring anywhere near enough cash. Truth is, I'm not sure how much more we've got at home. Maybe Jess has more in her purse. Oh, I've got a little cash I could loan you. No, no, that's okay. Actually, what I wanted to ask you is if you could loan me some ammo. What? Why? I wanted to trade with that guy over there. See him? Yellow hat. He's got some five-pound bags of flour. Trouble is, he won't take paper money. Says it's worthless now. When did dollars become worthless? Yeah, I didn't know they did, said Martin. If he won't take cash, then what's he asking for? Silver or ammo? Said he'd take 45 ACP, 308s, or 9 mil. He wanted 30 rounds of 9 mil for a five-pound bag of flour. I only have 17 in my magazine. You carry a nine, right? Could, could you loan me 13 rounds? I'll pay you back as soon as we get home, I swear. But then you'd have nothing in your gun. We just ran into those tuner boys yesterday. You want to go around unarmed? I know, I know, but it's just an hour's walk. Five pounds of flour is, well, like a week's worth of something to feed the kids. That seemed worth the risk to me. Okay, but 30 rounds for five pounds of flour? That sounds kind of steep, Martin said. Well, I thought so too, said Nick. But he's the only one trading flour. Even one bag of flour would be a big help for Jess and the kids. Besides, Nick leaned closer to whisper discreetly, I've got two full ammo cans of full metal jacket at home. Just no extra on me right now. That's what he's asking for, full metal jacket? Martin asked. Well, he didn't say, but that's what he had in the coffee can, so I just assumed that that's kind of what he meant. Well then, let's go see what this is all about. Hi, I, I'm back, Nick said to the man in the yellow hat. I hear you're asking 30 rounds of 9 mil for 5 pounds of flour, Martin said. That's a price, said yellow hat with a tone that excluded haggling. Martin pulled Nick aside. He dug the High Points magazine out of the box and emptied it into Nick's hands. Your 17 plus 10 from the Tuner Boys makes 27. Martin took one of the hollow points out of his magazine. Let's try this. How about this? Martin asked Yellow Hat. 27 jacketed 9 mil and one nickel-plated deep hollow point plus P. Nick held up the pile of 27 rounds in his open hands. Martin held up the silvery hollow point in the way that someone might hold up a pearl. Martin twisted it a few half-rotations so that the chrome-like shine could glint in Yellow Hat's eyes. All those years of watching television ads weren't entirely wasted. 
Yellow Hat eyed the pile and the pearl for a moment. He snatched the pearl. Deal. Nick smiled broadly. Oh, thanks, man. On the way out, Martin handed Nick two hollow points. Here, you shouldn't be totally unarmed on the way home. We can settle up the ammo later. But why the Perez family? Susan asked. Because the house and our food supply can't handle the extra. Martin didn't look up, but continued to rummage through Dustin's pile of scrap metal parts. Well, I understand all that, but if someone needs to go live at that town farm thing, why not the Dunnans? Susan nodded in agreement with her own conclusion. I know you're not too fond of Trish, began Martin. He held up one promising piece, but shook his head and dropped it. Are you? she asked in an implied suspicion. No, he said with finality. I didn't think so, and I know that you're not keen on Adam either. So this should be a no-brainer. Have them move to the town farm thing and let the Perez family go in the corner bedroom. I'm inclined to agree with you, but it's not as simple as that. We can't do yet, Martin, Margaret said, with a hint of whine in her voice that she had when she thought his ideas were bad. We can't just evict the Dunnins. We said we'd take them in. We committed ourselves. It's only been a few days. And, and then we boot them out? How would that look to everyone? I know we said we'd take them in, but was that supposed to mean forever? Martin countered. They both have their mm, problems, like Adam tending to sleep on watch. And she's not much of a worker. You said so yourself. Adam promised it would never happen again, right? Margaret said. They're just young. They're not used to having to get by. They'll be okay. Why are you defending them? I'm not defending them, Martin. It's just that we can't ship them off after a couple of days when we said we'd take them in. We made a commitment. We have to keep it. Martin sighed in resignation. Commitments. We really thank you, Mr. Martin, for finding us a place to stay, said Carlos. The four of them walked along the side of the highway. Martin forced a small chuckle. Yeah, well, don't thank me yet. We haven't seen it. It's not too far of a walk, but I wanted to see it for myself and make some introductions if necessary. Even if it is just a barn, we will be happy. We did not have anywhere to go when we left Manchester. I could only imagine us living in our car. Well, hopefully the Webster's place will be a step up from that, though I'm not sure what they have for accommodations. It sounded like there'd be a bed, maybe not much beyond that, Martin said. Oh, anything is a gift from God, said Carlos. What we had in the apartment was not much, but we had to leave all of those things. But I made sure I packed my race car, said Lucas. He swung his backpack around and dug in the front pocket. He handed it to Martin. Wow, that's a really nice race car, said Martin. I know, Lucas beamed. Papa made it himself, didn't you, Papa? Carlos smiled, somewhat embarrassed. Yes, I did, he patted Lucas. They let me keep the wood scraps from the jobs. I find some good ones, I take them home. Cool, Martin turned the wooden car over a few times, studying the many small parts. How did you make the tires? Oh, those are the cutouts for when they used their hole saw in the cabinets. I thought the plywood grain looked like tire treads, said Carlos. A little sanding, a little black paint. Ha, I have tires. Papa painted it red. It is my Ferrari, 
Lucas took back the toy car and did an eight-year-old's best rendition of a high-rev engine whine, downshifting for a turn. Lucas, he loves the Formula One. Lucas spent the rest of their walk to the Webster's farm, recounting the exciting moments of the past F1 season and what he thought was wrong with the rules. Oh, hello, purred Candace. Her smile was clearly on the condescending side of the line as she greeted Martin. What do you want here today? She tried to soften her tone when she saw that Martin wasn't alone. Uh, this is the Perez family. Martin motioned to them, again standing in a tight cluster. They recently fled gang violence in Manchester. Oh, my, gasped Candace. How awful. But they ran out of gas here in Cheshire. They don't have anywhere to stay, so I thought, what with the town farm decision yesterday, that... Oh, of course. Candace's smile shifted back over the line to compassionate. Oh, you poor souls. Come in, come in. We're just getting another family settled, so I'll go and get Mr. Webster. Candace hurried off. Mrs. Webster seems like a nice lady, said Carlos. Uh, that's not Mrs. Webster. Candace is a lady in town who, uh, likes to help. Martin parsed his words carefully. Don Webster appeared in the doorway. He was a little man, slightly stooped. Hello, hello, uh, come on in, he motioned with his free arm as he held the door open wide. I'll show you up to your room. They made their way through the low-ceilinged old house to a narrow stairway. Martin carried the Perez family's box of food, over Anna's objections. Martin could tell it was getting heavy for her, a mile back up the road. This is the room you'll be sharing with the Frenault family. Mr. and Mrs. Frenault sat on the tall, narrow bed. Their four-year-old daughter clung to her mother's leg, as if it conferred invisibility. We have two cots set up over here on this side, continued Don. You can rig up a blanket or something to separate your halves of the room if you like, but that's up to you. I've explained to the Frenaults about how to use the little fireplace, so you can ask them. I will repeat that this log rack here is your day's worth of firewood. You can refill it each morning, but that's all you get for the day. Use it sparingly. We don't have all that much firewood for all these fireplaces. Candace arrived with a colorful sleeping bag and an armload of bedding. These are for your cots, and here is something for your son. I hope it's not too childlike for such a grown-up young man. She beamed her best compassion smile at Lucas. He smiled back, happy at the promotion. Don leaned out of the door to point down the hallway. Down there's the little bathroom for the upstairs rooms. You'll be sharing that with everybody else up here. For now, use the buckets to flush, but it's your responsibility to refill the bucket. Mrs. Webster and I are getting too old to haul buckets or firewood. Uh, what about their food? Martin asked. Oh, I should have had you leave that downstairs. Uh, another rule, I'm afraid, is that we can't keep everyone's food separated. It's far too hard to keep track of it all. So, it's all going in one big pantry. Are you folks okay with that? Carlos and Anna nodded. So far, we're planning two meals a day said Mr. Webster. But it's a work in progress and will probably change as we get more people. Martin gave them a smile in lieu of a wave as he left. Candace was busy interviewing them about their dietary concerns. Downstairs, the kitchen was cramped, 
The boxes of food stacked along the walls suggested that the residents of Cheshire's town farm would not go hungry, well, for a little while at least. On the way back, Martin decided to use the shortcut that Holly showed them. The leaves on the vestigial road were still damp. While walking quietly along, he was lost in his own thoughts. Would he catch Adam sleeping on watch again? How would he tell Trish, nicely, to stop flirting for food? How would he tell Margaret about the red bra incident? Those all seemed like manageable issues, even if thorny. But what about Susan? That seemed like a problem too vague to even start solving. A faint clanking sound broke his train of thought. He stopped to listen more attentively, but it didn't repeat. He stood still longer, waiting for something else, a second shot, as it were. A faint sound of voices was barely audible and too brief to locate. He mused about how far sounds would carry once the leaves were off the trees. Who knew how far away the source had been? It had to be fairly far, as there was nothing but forest and swamp and a pond between Wilson Hill and Stockman Hill. And that's the conclusion of Chapter 12. I'd like to thank all of you listeners out there. Somewhere around Chapter 11, the Siege of New Hampshire series had passed over 10,000 downloads. I do appreciate your guys' support. <laughs>